All right. Well, welcome to church on a Sunday afternoon. Um, at this time, uh, we get to hear from Sean Mead. And uh, yeah, right. So she's going to share uh, her testimony. And uh, the title, really, of uh, the lesson, the theme, the thought this morning is uh, Forever. And uh, so she's going to be sharing her testimony, and then uh, I'll uh, share sort of an extended sermon communion time together. We'll have some announcements, and then uh, we'll uh, say our goodbyes. So it's been amazing to be out here with you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed at how many people I know in this group. We were here for about eight years, but, you know, there's always turnover and people and moving. And, uh, but it's just so great to be able to uh, stay in touch and uh, be in contact and I'm very grateful for uh, the staff and uh, you guys opening up your hearts to us. Having Sean and I be able to uh, be here for this uh, great weekend has been uh, truly a joy and enriching to us. So thank you guys very much just for uh, putting up with us and uh, inviting us into uh, your group here for this, uh, this weekend. It was a lot of fun. Got to even do some fishing this morning and last night till about 1230 with Jay Johnson. You, you just... You know, you come to a marriage retreat and you get bro time too, you know what I mean? So, so we got bro time, you know. Uh, the hockey game didn't really work out, but, but it was it's still good pizza, so amen. Sean Mead. Okay. Amen. Yeah, I wish I was that tall. Um, well, you know, our, our theme today is forever, and um, I was thinking, you know, the definition of forever is for all time, continually, without end. And I loved all those songs that focused on that. And, um, you know, for me, I was born in Colorado and um, in Inglewood, Colorado, which is nothing like Inglewood, California. <laughs> and, um, but my mom was seven. <laughs> yeah, nothing. It's the opposite. Um, it's, my mom was 17 when she had me, and uh, she was six months from graduating. I mean, she was graduated when I was, she, she was six months pregnant. And then she got married shortly before I was born. So that wasn't really the norm back in 1969, but that was how she chose to do things, and I'm obviously super grateful to be here. But um, my dad was um, actually, he was a, a kind of a hippie, and he was a drug user, and he actually be, was an alcoholic, became a very, fairly severe alcoholic later in his life. Um, and they stayed together for a few years. They had my little brother, who's two years younger than me, and when I was about four, we moved up to a very small mountain town called Idledale, Colorado. And it's extremely small. Like, we're, it has a post office, which is its only claim to fame. And it has a couple stop signs. Um, when I was younger, it had a couple of, it did have a country store at one point, but that, somebody shut it down and turned it into a house. So it's no longer there anymore. Um, but, and ironically, Dessa grew up a few miles from me. We just didn't meet each other until we were in high school, I mean, until we were in college. But we grew up, our, our moms were acquaintances, and we had no idea. And uh, I know, which was really um, kind of a, a great move of God to put us as best friends. But um, right, right after we moved up to the mountains, my parents separated, and they divorced shortly thereafter. Um, my dad stayed in my life for a short period of time, but very on and off. He was, you, you can imagine, being an addict. He was there, but not really there. And when I was 12, he pretty much disappeared. And um, when I was in the third grade, my, well, I was about eight years old, my mom started dating a man who was also an alcoholic, and he moved in with us, and he was extremely violent. And um, so he would, literally, he would beat my mom right in front of us. And um, many, many nights, you know, standing at the bottom of the stairs, because our living room was upstairs, and just waiting for the whole commotion to end. 
and, um, and praying the whole time that God would somehow move in this situation. And, um, you know, he would throw the phone out the window so that we could not call the police or he'd smash it up against the wall. And it would go on for the most part until we were able to escape and we left many nights in the car driving someplace to find a place to stay, my mom and my brother and I. Um, you know, it was amazing that I had faith in God back then. I mean, I just, I have such memories of praying and having no doubt that God heard my prayers. If to me, it was just a matter of when he was going to answer them, but I had no doubt that he actually heard them. You know, this went on for about, until I was about end of fifth grade, beginning of sixth grade. And so those are a lot of my memories of my mom as a single mom, unfortunately. Um, trying to remember. Oh, so yeah, I talked about how I started to pray. You know, when I was in the, the springtime of my sixth grade year, so just months after this whole thing ended, my mom hooked up with a childhood friend and who is now my stepdad. And they got married really fast. So he kind of entered our life, and all of a sudden was my mom's um, new husband. And we had never met him, even though he had known my mom since they were in high school. And uh, so that was, to me, such a, it was actually, I was so happy to be a family. So I didn't actually mind him coming into the family so quickly. It's just he had never had children before. And he was obviously entering into my life at a time when I was about 12 and a half years old. And that's just not the greatest time to enter a girl's life. <laughs> Um, so I was pretty impossible to deal with, honestly, and he had no idea how to emotionally connect. So we had pretty much did not have a relationship until I became a disciple. And um, so, but I, I at least had him around, which I was very grateful. That time when I was 12 was also, also when my biological dad decided to not have any contact with us anymore. I, I think that he actually got hurt by my mom being remarried. And as a result, you know, sometimes as it does, it gets taken out on the children and so that led to me going into my preteen and my high school years looking for love. And as normal, I looked for love in all of the wrong places. Um, you know, lots of parties, lots of drinking, lots of boyfriends, and just going down a really bad road very fast. Um, you know, I did long for that forever love, for sure. And I knew, it, you know, you could see that it existed somewhere. I just didn't know how to find it. Um, when I was a senior in high school, um, well, actually, when I was in third grade and we were going through that traumatic time, one of my mom's friends invited us to church, and we actually did start going to that church and went there periodically for about 10 years, not consistently, and I loved it. I just loved learning about God. I loved being able to go and have um, just learn about Jesus, and I never really learned the Bible, but I definitely had, a, had at least a foundation about God. And when I was a senior in high school, the son of my mom's friend who had invited us to church originally, he actually became a disciple, and a true disciple. And it was his freshman year of college, and he came home, and he shared with me and said, you have got to come to this church I found. And he told me all about how his life had changed, and I was so impacted by that. I, I had never seen someone my age take a big turn like that. So I came to church, I studied the Bible, and I became a disciple shortly thereafter. And that's actually, you know, where Brian was um, there. We were in the team ministry together. And I'm actually very grateful to Brian because I have these memories of him showing me or uh, going through his schedule with me. And it was all about who he was studying the Bible with and the different quiet times he was having. And he taught me how to be a disciple. I was like, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. Like, reach out to people. <laughs> and, you know, because you learn it. But when you see it being done, 
is when you realize what's really supposed to happen. So I've, I'm more grateful for Ryan and Dessa in more ways than I will ever know. Actually, coming to this retreat, I get so emotional spending time with them. But by this morning, I was just crying. Every time I spend time with them, it's like that. I should probably just be around them all the time. <laughs> I'd be much more soft-hearted. But, um, but you know, so is it, I obviously am super grateful to be a Christian. It changed my whole mindset. But getting when I met Marshall, he was everything I needed and everything I wanted, all packaged up into one. You know, he was obviously super funny, he's very handsome, he's a musician, he's smart, all these things that I respected and wanted in life, but he's also very secure, and he comes from a very stable family. And so we dated for about three years before we got married, and um, even get, but getting married, I had a lot of doubts about forever, and he really didn't have any doubts about forever, <laughs> and, um, but, you know, the, the things that I remember is I was, the one thing that gave me security was knowing that he loved God more than he loved me. And I thought, that is my, that's the thing I, I know I can hold on to. And it's always given me a ton of security. But I think as we got into arguments when we first got married, so many times I thought, this is it. It's over. I'm going to end up in the same way that my family's ended up. This is how I knew it would happen. And over the years, I've had to retrain my thinking not to be so doubtful about what really God can do. And I'm learning over, you know, it's not that those thoughts never cross my mind anymore, but I'm learning over time that it's not about who I am as a person. It's not even about being Marshall being from this great family or this secure place, but it's all about how we work in our relationship with God, that if we really put his commands, we really put his ways into our life, first and foremost, that we have forever ahead of us. And it won't depend on how great we are or how, you know, bad we are, or whatever it might be, but it's about that forever God that we just sang about. So those are the things I'm grateful for as I'm striving to learn what forever love is really all about. So. All right. She's awesome. If I were only half of the things that she said, I just was. <laughs> so secure. I don't know how secure I am. I, I see Dave Ford up there, and, and, and the, the people that do lip syncing, I'm very insecure. I would not be able to, in, I mean, there's just no chance. I would preach. I would do a thousand funerals before I would do that. Um, or weddings. I'm, this is a marriage retreat. I would do a thousand weddings. You know, when we talk about forever, uh, yeah, I knew this would get the awes, you know. <laughs> There's a, you know, growing old together, I don't know if it has a great appeal to you, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, like people, you start wearing down and, you know. Uh, but it is cute, it's romantic. Um, but the truth is, from a biblical standpoint, uh, what we have here is not going to last forever, is it? Right? It says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. What is that going to be like? Like running into your wife in heaven. It's like, hey, wow, you, like, you look really familiar. <laughs> Oh, we were, we were married. That's right. Oh, that's so cool. Where do you live? Where, you know, like, we should get together. Have you seen our kids? You know, I'm like, yes, they're here. Okay, good. You know, it's like, 
where are they? You know, do you know, do you have addresses? I don't know how all that is going to work, but I, I do know that in, in heaven we are just going to be with God. So, uh, you know, for some of you, maybe that's a tearing of your heart. For others, maybe that's like, well, jeez, let me just hold on for another 40 years, you know, <laughs> and then uh, be with God, you know. And I can give a side hug. Hey, good to see Yes, you know, whatever it is, you know, whether that breaks your heart or gives you hope, we get to be with God uh, forever. And so, in a sense, the only thing that's going to last from our marriage is the impact of our marriage, right? That's the only thing that's going to last. That's the lasting memory. This, this covenant is not meant to last forever. It's a temporary covenant, but the impact of our marriage will last forever. Uh, let me read an excerpt from uh, You and Me Forever. It says, He has given us a clear mission. We talked about this yesterday a little bit. To make disciples. All right, we, yet we have made happy families our mission. And that's not the mission Jesus gave us, but we try to justify this idolization of marriage because it's what we want. As we've been saying, marriage is important, but it's not the most important. When we focus on what's most important, our marriages will thrive because they'll be functioning according to their design. But if we focus too intently on our families, we'll actually fail at life and therefore at marriage. First, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The Bible teaches that we're at war. It's a real war with a real enemy. God has given us a mission so we can't allow us ourselves to get entangled in civilian pursuits. Picture a nice house with a white picket fence and you and your happy family lounging inside. Now imagine a full-scale war unfolding just a few blocks away. Your friends and neighbors are fighting for their lives while you're remodeling your kitchen and hanging your new big screen TV. You have contractors installing better windows so you can drown out the noise. Man, that's super convicting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, this guy is kind of nicely going off on us, right? Uh, but he's challenging us. He's calling us. We're being called, I feel, as a, as a church and as a fellowship back to our purpose, back to our mission uh, to really make a great impact. And so when we think of the statement that Christ made, you are the light of the world. How does that make you feel, that you are the light of the world? I don't know about you, but that makes me feel bad for the world. <laughs> because... If they're looking at me, to, and that, they have to see Christ and eternity and forever and answers and hope. Wow, that's challenging. But I want to take the pressure off of you and put it on who it belongs, which is Christ. See, he is the source of light, right? He, this is the verdict, light came into the world. But yeah, we like darkness because we're afraid that our deeds will be exposed. But whoever comes into the light, right? Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So it becomes obvious that it's not us, it's, it's who? It's God. And so he is the source. Christ, Jesus, is the source of the light. Then what is our job to do? 
Well, we reflect that light. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from where? Not within. <laughs> it comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we, in some ways, are supposed to be like the moon. When God created the sun and the, and the moon... Uh, the moon was to govern the night. The moon was to be a light in darkness. And it's when, like right now, you, well, there's cloud cover, but you can't really see the moon because of the brilliance of the sun, right? But when the sun goes away, then the moon comes up to govern the night. And so the moon, or the sun is powerful. I mean, it is a 6,000 degree Kelvin ball of plasma fire, right? And what is the moon? It's just a little rock. <laughs> and yet at night, you see the reflection of the sun. So is the moon a source of light? If I would have asked this like five minutes ago, I would have heard a lot of yeses. But you know where I'm going now. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. And then I would have been able to trick you. But I. So you know the moon is not the source of the light. The moon is just sort of a a rock sitting in space, but yet it just positions itself so that it can give light in a dark place. And I think we overcomplicate our mission sometimes, right? We make it about us. We sort of think we have to be the source of this light rather than simply reflecting the light of God and positioning yourself in just the right place in front of your friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, and just positioning yourself in a place where you can reflect God's glory. And look at the mission. Look how simple it was. The first thing Andrew did was find Simon and said, we've found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. Dude, let's give it up for Andrew, man. What an amazing guy he is, right? Well done, Andrew. It wasn't that Philip was like, wow, Andrew, your life is amazing. What's different about you? Well, come see, you know? It, no, it was like, hey, we found the Christ. <laughs> come and see. <laughs> Nathaniel's not much better either, you know, or Philip. Philip found Nathaniel, said, hey, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Messiah. And there's doubters, right? Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Well, come and see, said Philip. Let's give it up for Philip. Great job, Philip. <laughs> Overcame the doubts, the, 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 the cynicism, and, and brought him to Christ. What about the woman at the well, right? She wasn't even sure who Jesus was. Come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? And the townspeople of Samaria came out, and they spent time with Christ, right? Do you, do you think she needed to wait and really like make sure that her life was in a better place? It was just right away, immediate, bringing people to see Christ. It wasn't bringing people to see her, right? Same thing with the demon-possessed man. Go tell them all the Lord has done for you. And all the people were amazed. They were amazed at who? They were amazed at Jesus and the impact that he can make in our life. So, so what comes first, right? The chicken or the egg? Which comes first? An exemplary marriage or just using your marriage as an example to others. Because I think too many of us back off of the mission because we look at home and we think we're not really the light that we were called to be. And all of us feel that way. None of us feel like we have it all 
figure it out, do we? But the cool thing is, that is our in with people. <laughs> they don't have it figured out. We don't have it figured out. Come and see where I'm getting help with my marriage, <laughs> right? Come and see where we're getting help in our communication. Come and see the couples who are in our lives helping us. That's our in with people. If our lives were perfect, people would be like, that's too perfect. People are weirded out by Ned Flanders' religion. You know what I mean? Just Reverend Lovejoy stuff. Oh, people, God bless you, you know. Good to see you today. People can see right through that. They need to come and see our dysfunction and come and see where we're getting help with it. <laughs> That's our in with people. So you don't have to wait until you've got, the, you know, it's like uh, hospitality. All right, you know, kids, we're going to try to be Christians for the next two hours. And when the Robinsons leave, we can start fighting again. <laughs> no, they need to come in and they need to see you say, you know what, I need to talk to Kyle for a second. And then they need to see you go into the other room and talk to Kyle. And they need to see Kyle come out and apologize to that. Right? Let them in. Let them see. Marriage is like riding a bike. It's easy, right? <laughs> okay, let me, let me clarify. Marriage is like riding a backwards brain bicycle. So I'm going to show you a video which you might think has nothing to do with marriage. This video has everything to do with marriage. Let's watch hey, it together. Hey, it's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill and I was really proud of it. Everything changed though when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Sandlin. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. <laughs> In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it, but that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic procession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm, and if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're gonna try some trick or they're just gonna power through it. It doesn't work. 
Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. Oh, no, 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 no. No, you didn't understand. You didn't understand. So, this way. Okay. All right, I'm like, All right, so, uh, whatever you're at, yeah. Wait, wait. No, no, you have to keep your feet on. Dude, all right, here we go. Wait, wait, wait. Like, you gotta start rolling at least. Keep your feet on the pedal. Go. Go <laughs> <laughs> right off. Just keep your feet on the pedal. Tails on. Yep. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. <laughs> so here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically, and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you gonna give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up, you got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in, how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. All right, today's bike log. I can ride smooth, I can ride fast. I'm thinking the experiment is over. Okay, now I'm in Amsterdam, a city that has more bicycles than people. The question is, can I ride a normal bike now? I mean, I've spent all this time unlearning how to ride a bike. If I go back and try to ride a normal one, will my brain mess up? So I've tweeted a Smarter Everyday Meetup, if you will, and I'm gonna see if somebody brings a bicycle and I'm gonna try to ride a normal bike. This was one of the most frustrating moments of my life. I had ridden a normal bike since I was six, but in this moment, I couldn't do it anymore. I had set out to prove that I could free my brain from a cognitive bias. But at this point, I'm pretty sure that all I proved is that I could only redesignate that bias. So what you're not seeing is just a group of people here looking at me, looking at the strange American that can't ride a bike because they think I'm dumb. But I'm actually two levels deep into this because I've learned and unlearned. All right. After 20 minutes of making a fool out of myself, suddenly my brain clicked back into the old algorithm. I can't explain it, but it happened in a very specific moment. <laughs> I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm back. Oh, it clicked, it clicked. hold on, it clicked. I got it, I got it. Okay, there it is. 
There was the moment. Good. Okay, I can ride a bike. I tried to explain this to the people around me, and they just didn't get it. They thought I was faking the previous 20 minutes, and I couldn't get anybody to believe me. That looked like I faked that, didn't it? Yeah. Just a fake. Yes. You think I'm faking. You don't believe me. You think I'm lying, don't yeah, you? I I'm not lying. I felt like the only person on the planet who had ever unlearned how to ride a bike, and I couldn't articulate it to anyone because everybody just knew that you can't forget how to ride a bike. So I learned three things from this experiment. I learned that welders are often smarter than engineers. I learned that knowledge does not equal understanding. And I learned that truth is truth, no matter what I think about it. So be very careful how you interpret things because you're looking at the world with a bias, whether you think you are or not. Mm. I'm Destin, you're getting smarter every day. Have a good one. Okay. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Smarter Every Day is a YouTube channel, and he's got all sorts of cool little science stuff on there that uh, is fun. Me and the kids watch it a lot. He's got a lot of high-speed camera stuff. Now, what do you think, uh, just response from you guys, what does this have to do with marriage? <laughs> what do you think, Zoe? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, what else? Yes. Adjustments. <laughs> That's right. Brian. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, a lot of the your old way of doing things, your old bias which seems so natural, right? Calvin Isn't that, no, really, that's a good point. I mean, for those who have been sort of in, in a certain way of thinking for all their lives, become Christians, and now left is right, and right is left, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, Matt. Isn't that true? Like, he had to work on this for eight months to finally sort of feel like he got it, and, and within about 20 minutes, he could go right back to the old way of thinking. That's a great point, too. Yeah. It, it is. You have to kind of reprogram how you think because what's intuitive to you uh, just does not work in marriage and especially in communication, right? These are all great points. And, and we kind of laugh, but like, he, like him, I'm laughing, but this is very frustrating, uh, right? Being patient, being understanding, being first to apologize or, or take responsibility. These things are not intuitive to us. We've made a living off of not doing those things. So to try to learn how to go left when you really go right, it's like, so, you know, what I'm hearing from you, Sean, is that you, you don't feel that, that I've been attentive uh, to the needs of the children when I'm home and helping the discipline. Man, you know, I is that how you're feeling? Yeah, I, I can understand how you're feeling that way. And I, I'm really, I'm sorry, you know, for the way that I contributed to that feeling. I'm really going to work on that area. And, you know, I do apologize for, you know, the load you've had to carry. And I really want to make sure that I, I feel like uh, you help, that you feel that I'm doing my part. And I, I really want to ask your forgiveness. Do you think that that's how, like, that that comes natural, you know? What do you mean, the kids? I, yesterday, when, you know, when you were gone and I, you know what I mean? That's left, you know what I mean? 
And we think we're going left and boom, the bike goes right and we crash and we keep doing it over and over and over. So it really is. Marriage is tough and it's like learning. And so those of us, uh, you know, our friends and neighbors, do you not think that they're not going through the same thing? The people in our community. So this is our in. We're sort of just figuring it out. You know what I mean? But we don't have to ride and do wheelies and woo, the light of the world, you know. Hey, guys, you know, happy marriage over here. No, they can come in and see you guys and hear your crash stories. And that's really what it means to be a light of the world. Uh, the Wadstroms were like this for Sean and I as, as young married couple. We got to sort of be around them all the time and then live in the Middle East with them. And uh, it was a full advertisement. Here's our whole life, you know. Here's our kids and all their challenges and all the issues. And I remember getting with Jeff and Mary once and on an issue that Sean and I were having. It was uh, about our sex life, and I was stuffing everything for six months. And finally, it was my turn to talk in a D time, unbeknownst to Sean. And so I'm unloading about this and that and, you know, real sensitive. I didn't even talk to her first. It was just it, like... Every mistake you can make in a D time, I, I did it, you know, throwing her under the bus, all the things that she said about me, you know, it was not true in that moment. And so I got done and I was venting and I was in sin and Sean was crying and, and Jeff and Mary looked at each other and started laughing. And it wasn't that they were just being insensitive to us, though maybe they might have been. <laughs> they were laughing because as they heard us talk, they had had that same conversation in their own marriage that week. And I'll tell you what that did for Sean and I. We suddenly went from a place of there's no hope for us to, oh, so that's normal. <laughs> So we're not weird, so there's room to grow, so there's change, so there's hope, so there's possibility, so there's, there's answers for us. And if that can be happening in our discipling times, how much more in our mission, in our purpose, for people to come and see that though sinful and fallen and uh, wobbly, there is hope for them. Amen? Because most people, they give you only a small picture of their life, and it's best foot forward typically so you don't get the full picture and you might think that everybody at school and soccer parents wow everybody seems happy right everybody's doing well for the most part we're the ones that are having to work so hard no the difference is you've got to be exposed right you've got to live by the truth and expose your life if you don't have the same fears that they do about exposing your life then expose your life to them. Expose the, the strengths, the weaknesses, the way you're working on your marriage so that they may see that what has been done in your life has been done through God. One of the areas as we are, are closing up here that Sean and I were very uh, public about, uh, that, that, that we exposed in our life that was very hard for us to go through at the time was our struggle with infertility. And uh, that's a very challenging journey. For those who have been on it, and I know that I'm talking to uh, several couples in this room without even knowing you, you've struggled with infertility. Uh, as many as one to six couples are facing infertility. So even those of you who stood up yesterday as new marrieds, uh, we know that some of you will struggle with this. You will want to start a family, and guess what? Everyone on the planet will have a child when you're trying to have a child. 
everyone you know will be, we were on six kinds of birth control and it just happened, you know? <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. We'll get you, see you at the shower. You know what I mean? It's tough. Um, and it's a very lonely journey, and we just, we just began really soliciting everybody's prayers and sharing and being very open with it uh, with people. And I'm not saying that's going to be the answer for you. It's, it's a really unique journey to each and every couple facing infertility. We did a class here in San Diego at the Southwest Conference in 2010 uh, for couples facing infertility. And th they didn't really do a great job of the class description, so people thought it was if you just want to start a family, and so we had this whole room full of young marrieds, and I thought, I don't know if you guys know what this class is for, I don't know if it was properly explained, but this is for couples who are facing infertility and the, the journey of faith and hardship that that plays in your life, and about half the room got up and left, which was good for them, but it just made those who stayed feel all the more challenged, because and, and there were people that I just saw from that moment to the end of the class, they were in tears. They just were crying. There was, there's so much pain and loneliness and, and embarrassment and, and struggle associated with this. And uh, so uh, for that class, uh, I know really ministered to people. And it was just Sean and I being able to tell our journey. And, and this is, you know, I, I just was crying out to God. And I said, I'm going to figure out the closest I can get to God and beg him uh, for answers in this journey. And uh, so I, the, I looked up on a map, and the closest I could get was 14,496 feet. And uh, Mike and Amanda climbed up there with us that day, uh, which was awesome. They were the lone African-American couple. You know, it, it, they, don't, they don't climb Mount Whitney type. You know what I mean? I, I don't know, man. They were... Yeah, that's right. They were... <laughs> We had such a good time with them. They summited with us, and and Sean and I cried out for children at this uh, at this mountain. And it, th there's a longer story to it, uh, but but God obviously blessed it. We were able to, when we moved to uh, Lebanon, we did go through uh, in vitro there, uh, which as young ministry interns we just had no money, and so uh, in Lebanon it was about a thousand dollars. And so God put us in Beirut, and within two months, we did IVF and were pregnant with Katie, uh, who just got baptized literally 14 years almost to the day after she was conceived, <laughs> you know what I mean? in a sense, you know, so. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then. And then the journey continued, actually, for those who face infertility. Even when you have a child and want to grow your family, that, that pain is actually still there, right? It's, it's still present. And, and so God, you know, uh, there, was, there was more challenges, you know, a failed IVF, uh, a, a miscarriage. And, uh, and then finally Kyle came, and, and, uh, and then Justin came. And then we, like, had to figure out how to stop this, you know? So, uh, like... <laughs> Weld something together, or cauterize it, or do whatever you need to do, but we got to stop. Yeah. That's right. But you know, this, 
because of that journey that we took and because we exposed that and because we, you know, God has led us to so many couples and so many, and some in this room that we just, we sort of hear, we are the eyes and ears of this challenge in a sense. Uh, and God, uh, you know, has sort of just all the miracles. And I know of like four in this room miracles uh, and there's probably more, but but there's just like you get to when when you have a weakness and when you have a struggle, that is you're in with people. That is where you are the light of the world. When you bring light to that and when you expose that and when you, you know, when the comfort that, that Christ brought you now overflows into the suffering of somebody else in, in the world and in the community. That's really what we are called to be. Uh, some of you guys probably know Steve uh, Smith. I mean, this story, just briefly, we were. We actually set up a table at our uh, gift-based ministry fair in Orange County, and uh, we just said, you know, I just made up some flyers like, you know, nobody wants to go to the infertility table, you know what I mean? It's like the purity table, you know? It's like, I'll see you afterwards, you know, let me grab one of those. Nobody, there's not a long line, though they probably all need to go to that table, but nobody, you know, the guy's just sitting there, you know. But anyway, so the infertility table... Uh, a sister walked up with her own sister who was not a disciple. She was a disciple, and she just said, my sister's pregnant and wants to give her baby to someone. Do you know someone who, who would want this child? I'm like, that's not really what this booth is for necessarily. Um, <laughs> but that was the series of events that allowed uh, the, the Smiths to adopt their child. Just miracles and when you've been through a dark place and then your eyes are open to the miracles that God can do through your weakness we are to reflect the light we're not the source it is God but we have to position ourselves in our families our communities our neighborhoods and our schools to reflect the glory of Christ and can't you wait till there is no longer any weakness any struggle any pain any hurt uh, and that's really the promise of Revelation 22, 3 through 5. This is God coming in for a landing in his great love story called the Bible. And he's, he's coming in for a landing. He says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this is where we want to be, and we will not be married here. We will just be like angels worshiping our great God, and His name will be on our foreheads, and, and we will bask in His light. And so the impact that we have in this world Really, that's what it's all about, is, is, is bringing as many people with us as possible uh, that, that we can be used by God in that way. And, and Revelation 12, 11 says, We triumph over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So everything Satan does to dog us, that is our ammunition to fight his kingdom. So use your life, use your marriage, and use your testimony to see this great triumph. Let's pray for communion. Father, we ask your blessing on this time of fellowship that, God, uh, we could just think about this great light and, and want to see it someday, the light 
of Christ and uh, the, the light of, of the glory of God. And Father, we know that light shines even in this dark world. So God, put us in positions that we might reflect that glory. Put us in positions that we might reflect your great glory in our, in our families and our communities, God. Use us in a great way. Help us to, to figure this thing out as we go, too, God. And, and I just pray that uh, you know, we would remember Christ and hold up his great banner in our lives, God. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.